0: Today's reading is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite Which of these 3 do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, "The one who showed him mercy." And Jesus said to him, "You go and do likewise." This is the word of the Lord. Praise be hey, to speed
1: you. Of Christ. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. Hey, good morning everybody. How you doing? Really? How are you? All right, awesome. still on that fall break uh, hey uh, my name is Scott. Uh, if we have not met yet, if you are a guest to us, uh, great to have you here really glad that you're here. I'm one of the pastors along with with um, others who've been up here, Todd and Pastor Derek and others and uh, it's my privilege to welcome you this morning and to um, take a shot at at uh, at explaining the text in front of us. Uh, I, I want to start before I get into the text, though, with our announcements, as is usually the case. Uh, if you could take the black notebook, pass it on, fill out your name, uh, and and uh, learn the names of the people around you as well. Believe it or not, we really use this. We study it carefully every week. Uh, this little black book is one of the ways uh, to, to let us know that you're here. We are one church, but we have three services and two locations, and so this is a, a, a good way to to help us sort of keep track uh, of everybody and ensure that nobody gets fall uh, you know falls through the cracks and that sort of thing. So let us know you're here, how we can serve you, and 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 those sorts of things. Uh, there there are a couple of featured announcements uh, today. One is the Election Week Politics Forum that's coming up November the sixth. That's going to be a Sunday. It's going to be four p.m. in here. And uh, it's going to be moderated by uh, one of the members of, of Christ Prez, who's also uh, an anchor, uh, co-anchor at WKRN, Samantha Fisher. Uh, and uh, I will be one of the panelists, but I will be joined uh, by, by two others, uh, Republican governor of Tennessee, Governor Bill Haslam, and also Democrat Michael Ware, who uh, is from Washington, D.C., and, and he uh, worked for a few years in the Obama administration. And uh, what I want to do uh, is just let you know, uh, ahead of time, we're not going to tell you how to vote. We're not going to, going to insinuate how you should be voting. The, the, the purpose of this conversation is actually entirely different than that. Uh, the reason why we're having this conversation is to uh, to offer a demonstration of something that's really important and central to the DNA of our church, and that is to provide a picture of what it could look like to love and respect and listen to people who are coming from different perspectives if jesus would pull together simon the anti-government zealot and matthew the government employee into the tribe of 12 disciples and 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 lead them in such a way that they they lived chiefly as brothers and 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 significantly less than that as partisan opponents, then there's there's something that that has to say and to contribute to our life together and the way that we engage the world, especially in uh, a time that's so divided like the one that we're in now. Uh, This is designed for you to bring friends. Please bring friends people to uh, this gathering. Uh, we're making it really easy. Child care is provided for free. Registration is free, but we really do need for you and those that you bring to register so we can anticipate who's going to be here uh, and offer the best hospitality that we can. Registration details and everything else in your bulletin. Uh, second featured announcement is October 25th at 6:30 p.m. Uh, we're going to have healing prayer for for uh, those who are um, weary and burdened in our own church family, also for the weariness and burdens that exist in our city of Nashville and also nationally and throughout the world. Uh, prayer with other people is also one of the, the chief ways that we encounter Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, he tells us, whenever two or three or more are gathered together in my name, I am with them. Uh, so, I uh, encourage you to, to be part of that. If you're uh, Abel again on October twenty fifth, six thirty p.m. and that's going to be here. So uh, now let's dive into the Good Samaritan parable, which is one of the most famous texts and one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. And, and I think it's really helpful that we we uh, sort of preceded this message and this scripture with the line in the Book of Common Prayer where we all agreed, Lord, make us love what you command. That's a great picture of what the purpose of prayer is. Prayer is actually not there in order to get God aligned with our hopes and wishes and dreams and ambitions and and, and our culture and, and our sensibilities. It's actually the opposite. Prayer is about alignment, but it's about getting us aligned with the heart and focus and mission of God. And so, to sort of kick us off this morning, I'd like to read this little highlighted excerpt that's there in your bulletin. You can read along with me if you'd like. As Christ's ambassadors, and this is our commitment, one of our commitments at Christ Presbyterian, as Christ's ambassadors to our neighbors in need, we will aspire to live lives of mercy and justice. We will give special attention to and generously channel our resources toward improving conditions and systems— whether spiritual, social, economic, or vocational, for the poor, immigrants and refugees, ethnic and other minorities, and others who lack resources, opportunity, or privilege. We will embrace the idea that as conditions improve for those who have power, conditions must also improve for those who lack power and never at their expense." For wealth, privilege, and power are given to be stewarded and shared for the benefit of all and not protected and kept merely for the benefit of some. So, there are very few subjects in the Scriptures that ruffle feathers like this one. The message I'm about to deliver to you, uh, I delivered a similar message in New York City once, several years ago. And after that message, I got a couple of Monday morning emails. That's sometimes the case. I I welcome those. Uh, I don't resist them. I listen to them carefully. But this one was particularly interesting because one of the two emails accused me of being a right-wing extremist, and the second email accused me of being a left-wing Marxist. This is a subject that is going to ruffle our feathers, because whenever Jesus stirs the pot, it invites discomfort and it threatens our status quo, especially if we are among those who have privilege and power and resources. This kind of message, this kind of parable is designed to mess with your status quo and move your cheese. I'm a mockingbird here to deliver a message that comes not from me, but from Jesus. I'll remind us one, of, of one thing that was said from this stage by our Native American friend, Charles Robinson, when we did a forum on race that was moderated by Brandy Kellett not, not so long ago. And Charles said, from the Native American perspective, this is why it's important to stir the pot Sometimes. Because if you look at the human community as a pot of stew, if you think about it, if you don't stir the pot, that which is sitting on the bottom is that which gets burned, and we don't want anybody to get burned. And so we're going to stir the pot a little bit today. We're going to stir the pot too because Jesus favors the underdog. We find him constantly running, even sprinting toward the margins, toward the poor, toward the disabled, toward lepers and widows and little children and corrupt government employees, toward political partisans, toward sexual minorities like the prostitutes and the woman caught in adultery, like religious and ethnic minorities such as the Samaritan that Jesus strategically and thoughtfully places as the protagonist hero in this parable. The other reason is that the God of the Bible is the God who insists that we get on board with the sanctity of all human life and not just certain segments of human life. All the way from the moment of conception to to, to the day of transition into the next life. Every human being has dignity, worth, and value. Like we've said before, the more conservative our theology is, uh, in other words, the more we take every single word of the Scriptures to be true and to come from our Creator, the more liberal we will be in the way that we love. The more we walk on the narrow path of Jesus— the more broad and wide our embrace is going to be. So we're going to look at three questions today from Jesus' teaching. One is who, the second is how, and the final one is why. So we'll start with the who. Who? Who is my neighbor, the lawyer? And by the way, he's not talking about an attorney here. He's talking about a teacher in the law of God. He, He was sort of a, this would be the equivalent of a pastor, of a church elder, of a person who holds the degree Master of Divinity or Ph.D. in theology, a doctrinal person, a Bible man. And he says to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus' unequivocal answer is, Anybody and everybody who is near, especially those who are in need. Teacher of the law, when he asks who is my neighbor, what he's trying to do is establish limits. Who qualifies and who is disqualified from the ministry of care and the ministry of mercy, from neighbor love. And by inserting a Samaritan who is known in those days as a mortal Enemy to any first century Jew by inserting the the Samaritan in the parable in such a disorienting way because he makes the Samaritan the protagonist and he makes the two religious professionals, the priest and the Levite, the respected clergy, the antagonists. By putting the Samaritan in the parable in such a way, Jesus is saying there is no limit whatsoever. To who your neighbor is. You owe a debt of love to every single one of your neighbors who is near and especially those who are in need. And that's a teaching throughout the Bible. Anyone who is near. So, this man on the road, here's what Jesus is saying with respect to sort of the, the disposition or the posture of the priest and the Levite, which is really the person, you know, the priest and the Levite are the people that, that Jesus is wanting the teacher or the, the, the questioner, his inquirer to identify with. He's basically saying that the man who is beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road, what he looks to be on the outside is a reflection of what the priest and the Levite and, and, and the inquirer who's asking Jesus, Who is my neighbor, look like on the inside. You've got two clergy who, on the exterior, they're pious, they're devoted. Uh, and, and of course, in the mind of any Jew in, first, in the first century, they, they wouldn't go up to this this body that, that's lying on the side of the road because they all knew that if you touched a dead body as a priest or as a Levite or as a clergy, professional clergy, you would be ceremonially unclean and then you'd have to go through a, a week of rituals, very public in a way that would uh, would, would uh, put you at risk professionally. It would, it would put your reputation in the religious community at risk if you touched a dead body. And so, so they walk by. On the other side, it says. But the corruption of what's inside of the priest and the Levite is something deeper than that. Because what it says in verses 31 and 32 is that both the priest and the Levite saw the man. They saw him. And then they looked the other way. They saw a hurting image barrier, a carrier of the divine imprint left for dead, and they closed their eyes and they closed their hearts. Not our concern. He's not one of us. He's one of them. What would the neighbors say? You know, 1 John 3, though, says this. If anyone has material possessions and closes his heart to a neighbor in need, how can the love of God be in him? That's actually a rhetorical question, and the answer is the love of God cannot be in the person with the polished exterior, but who closes his heart to those in need. It's quite possible to have a very clean reputation and a religious exterior and to also simultaneously have a dead soul. We see this pictured in Revelation 3. It's quite terrifying, actually, where, where Jesus speaks in to a privileged, affluent community called the church at Laodicea, and he says you have a reputation for being alive. Your programs, they're awesome. Best music in town. Watertight theology in your preaching. You, know, you give this percentage of your, your budget to you know these important causes and so on. You have a reputation for being alive, but the truth of the matter is you are naked and poor and wretched and blind. The people in need, they're all around us and and, and they're everywhere. Many of us are those people in need. In fact, I'm going to contend in a few moments that we're all those people. We're all the people in need. But Bill Hybels, who's a, a Chicago pastor, gave a talk. I don't know about 20 years ago. I've kind of held on to this and used it as sort of a checkpoint for my own heart on a pretty regular basis. He says, "Healthy Christianity, in, in most cases, in most cases, healthy Christianity means we're going to surround ourselves." with three kinds of relationships. They're, all, they're going to be those people who build into our lives and we're the primary receivers. They're going to be more reciprocal relationships where, 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 where we're both, you know, sort of giving and receiving, from, giving to and receiving from one another. And then they're going to be those relationships where we are the primary giver. We are the primary spenders of our capital, of our energy, of our mind share, of our resources for the benefit and flourishing of strugglers. It says balanced relational living will include all three of those realities on some level for most people who identify with Jesus. It's that third category, though, that's disorienting. It's disruptive. It, it, It messes with the status quo. But Jesus doesn't back off from it. You know, right here, what's at risk for the Samaritan? One thing that's at risk for the Samaritan is his safety. Because as it says, he's on the road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho, and there, there was actually a place on that road from Jerusalem to, to Jericho that they called the Pass of Blood, because assaults would happen there all the time. And here's how it went. Booby traps would be set for well-intended travelers, where you'd get a group of, say, four or five people… And one of them would lay on the side of the road and pretend to be hurting, pretend to be in need of help. And then a well-meaning traveler would stop and, and say, what can I do to help you? And then the person he's trying to help would get up and attack him, and then the three or four friends would come and attack him as well, and they'd take everything from him, and then they would actually, in truth, leave him for dead. And so it's very possible that this Samaritan is actually walking into a trap. He doesn't know the motive of the person in front of him. He doesn't know if this person's a poser or if he actually has a justice need. And so he goes in, risks his own life even. There are also sort of xenophobic issues that that, that come into play in this in this scenario too, because Jews and Samaritans, they were violent toward one another. They didn't just dislike one another. There was a history of violence. If you're a Bible reader, you might have recollection actually of Luke chapter 9, when Jesus and his disciples are, are in a Samaritan village, and it says that the Samaritans in that village rejected and, and mistreated Jesus and his disciples. And the disciples look at Jesus and say, Lord, shouldn't we call fire down from heaven on these miserable Samaritans to destroy them. Like, that was just sort of how it went. Let's let's respond to rejection with violence, and that's what Jews and Samaritans did with one another. And so, there was very legitimate fear for for a a Samaritan on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho that, that was chiefly populated by Jews to encounter somebody from a different religion, a different political persuasion, a different race, I mean, the tensions are so thick here that the teacher of the law can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. When Jesus says, who was the neighbor in this scenario, he couldn't say the Samaritan. The the, the best he could do, the furthest he could go, is to say the one who showed mercy. Xenophobia is unwilling to humanize. The other person in the equation. And yet here's what happens, verse 33, in Jesus' parable, which really isn't a parable at all, it's a picture of Him. The declared enemy shows compassion to the person who might be intent on destroying Him. This word compassion comes from the same root as the word womb comes from. Do you hear how impossible this standard is that Jesus is establishing? Because what he's saying to to the Jewish sort of master of divinity, to the pastor, to the clergyman who's asking him this, the question, who is my neighbor? What Jesus is saying is this, your heart needs to be moved with such compassion toward your enemy that it resembles The compassion that you would feel for a child in your own womb. What an impossible standard. And so Western disdain is is a bit more insidious because because in the West, we're not as explicit and overt with with our sort of held-in hostility toward other people groups, you know, that, that, that are different from whatever people group we're part of. It's much more insidious. And what what Western resource people often will say is, the poor are poor because of the poor. Those who don't have privilege, those who don't have resources, those who aren't ahead in life, it's their fault. It's because they're lazy. It's because of a bad work ethic. It's because they don't pull themselves up like the rest of us do and apply themselves. But here is a, a very significant missing element in that line of thinking. In the vast majority of the cases, you've got one person over here who was born into this situation with this world of opportunity, and then you've got another person born into a, a, a much more difficult uh, situation with much less opportunity. So, one of my friends was telling a story the other day about uh, this sort of heckling relationship between uh, basketball player Shaquille O'Neal and… and and a, a businessman who was successful enough to afford, you know, front row seats at basketball games. And so this guy heckles Shaquille O'Neal from sort of the front row seats, and they yell back and forth each other. And, and, and what my friend said was, you know, there was one occasion where, where this successful businessman was, was, was heckling Shaq during a game, and Shaq responded, looked back to the guy and said, you're a nobody. The only reason why you have the resources you do is because you got lucky you had one idea, and somebody took that idea, and you got lucky. And then the guy fired back at Shaq, well, you did a whole lot too to be seven foot three, didn't you? Both of them are wrong in the way that they're treating one another, but both of them are right in saying the only reason why you are where you are is because of circumstances that were given to you from outside of you that you can't take any credit for. Remember how we talked about this before? If if you were born on third base, you can't give yourself credit for hitting a triple. The response to that is not pride, it's thankfulness. The response to that is not pointing a finger at the person in the parking lot who was born in the parking lot, but it's gratitude and then a gesture toward the person in the parking lot to get them into the stadium, hopefully get them on first, second, and, and maybe opportunity to get to third like you, because they need. but they need your help. They need your compassion, your empathy. You know, if over fifty percent of the world lives on less than two dollars and fifty cents a day, which is true, then all of us, you could say, in this room were born seven foot three in a world of people who are five foot two. And the question is, are we going to take credit for being seven foot three? Are we going to take whatever initiative is given to us to to, to lift the person who's five foot two over our head so that they can dunk the ball too? So, the who is anyone who's near, especially those who are in need. The question is how. The next question is how. And there are two responses to this. One is holistically, word and deed. By being a Bible person and a justice person. And you're, you're a Bible person not in spite of the fact that you're a justice person, but because you're a justice person. And you're a justice person not in spite of the fact that you're a Bible person, but because you're a Bible person. You know, it is a false dichotomy to pit spiritual devotion and generous justice against one another. The two have to go together, and they always do wherever there is true, authentic, comprehensive Christianity. You know, in Jesus we have the merging together of the best of conservative and the best of liberal virtues, and in Jesus we have the categorical rejection of the worst of conservative vices and the worst of liberal vices. Whole Christianity, the entirety of Christianity, upsets everyone because Jesus, on the one hand, is going to annoy the liberal in us because he's ultra-conservative, just like the priest and the Levite. He is committed to getting everything right. He's deeply concerned about the law Every single aspect of the law of God, Jesus said, is going to be fulfilled. And and, and furthermore, I'm going to tell you later through my half-brother James that if you break one law of God, you've broken all of it. That's how high the bar is. That really messes with the liberal inside of us. But then he messes with the conservative inside of us as well when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, and everyone's your neighbor. Everyone. That person, that group, your neighbor who deserves the same compassion as the one in your womb. You owe a debt of love to your neighbor, Jesus said, because of the love that's been lavished on you. Love your neighbor as yourself, comprehensive sanctity of all human life, even when it's costly, when it's inconvenient, when you're putting yourself at risk, like the Samaritan does on the Pass of Blood. Tim Keller said this. He said that it's actually a life of generous justice that leads people to, our our neighbors, to want to engage the gospel. He says, what is gospel neighboring? It's to meet the concrete needs, the human needs of all the people around you, whether they believe like you do or not, with such costliness and such sacrifice that people will need to hear the gospel just to try to make some sense out of your life because you are so inexplicable. Holistic, comprehensive, but also together. Here's the beautiful thing. As an individual, the burden is not on you for this. As a community, this is our calling. You know, we get so paralyzed, or at least I get so paralyzed when I, when I start to just process all the need that exists in the world, all the need that exists in in my own city, all the need that exists in the, 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 the church that I pastor, all the need that exists in my own household. It's overwhelming until we understand, again, the value of southern vernacular for biblical interpretation and correct translation. Of biblical words, because as we've talked about many times before, these imperatives that Jesus gives to us are imperatives given to communities, chiefly, and not chiefly to individuals. The calling is upon us. Did you notice that the Samaritan doesn't take care of these needs by himself? He's the financier. But then he hands the Samaritan over to an innkeeper who will provide shelter and health care with the resources that he has contributed. Two denarii, that's two days pay, and if you work 20 days a month, that's about 10% right there. He gives 10% of his monthly income, and then the innkeeper takes over and provides health care and shelter and presence, and then the financier says, I'm going to circle back just to make sure that you've got enough resources to cover these needs. So, it's not hard to put two and two together. In a world that's weary and beaten and, and, and laying down on the side of the road, Jesus has commissioned the church to be the innkeeper. You look at our own community, we've got givers and distributors, distributors, And we're all called, on some level, to be all of the above, givers and distributors, such that we function, when we function at our best, we function both as a hospital for internal needs and as an ambulance for the needs that exist outside of us and outside of these walls. You know, the hospital dynamic, you know, Jesus said, I'm a a physician, and he continues His work and his ministry in the world by by commissioning his church to do similar works. It is enough, Jesus said, for the servants to be like their master. And so we have to set our church up for many things, one of which is to be a life-giving hospital. This is one of the reasons why my hope is to finish at Christ pres, like not in two years, but in like 25 years. Because in my experience thus far, this is the best place in the world by a landslide to struggle, to suffer, and to die. I've got sort of an unofficial agreement with David Filson, it's part of his job description not to die before I do because I want David there along with Todd and Buzz and, and, and others to comfort my family when I'm gone. I'm only half kidding because I've seen it. I've been up close. I've watched how well this church takes care of, of, of one another. You know, this is a home for the weary and the burdened. Twelve marriages just in the past year to 18 months, twelve plus or minus marriages, I'm told. I don't know the names of, of these people, the people involved, but a dozen-ish or so marriages, I'm told, from the care ministry, have moved from crisis to positive trajectory toward healing and hope. That's a dozen. That's a lot. This is a terrific community for divorce care. If you're grieving and bereaved, if you're depressed and anxious, if you're addicted, if you're experiencing a financial hardship, this is a church where where you can experience loneliness but also know that you never have to be alone sexual addiction and and so on this church does our community does hospital really well but our community is doing ambulance really well as well you know cpc scatters between sundays you know we've even got an insert here about you know getting involved with incarcerated women we have others involved with incarcerated men others serving uh, you know, for, for, for the purpose of addiction recovery for those who are drug addicted and sex addicted and retail therapy addicted out in our city. And this church, Christ Pres, has become a lead church in Nashville for refugee and immigrant care. We baptized three people from the Middle East here in our church right here in the past 12 months. One of them, a Muslim convert to Christianity, and, and her, her way in was a Good Samaritan. And then a community of Good Samaritans coming alongside. We partner with Vanderbilt University to provide job training and career paths for adults with special needs. Others of you are right there in the thick of the battle against sex trafficking and helping prostitutes recover not only their lives, but also their dignity. Now, I could go on. I could go on for twenty more minutes, but I don't have twenty more minutes. Um, but I mean, if there's if there's one thing to you know, do this and kind of keep it up and keep going, I, I think mercy and justice is, has always really been a, a strength and, and, and part, you know, central to the pulse of Christ Presbyterian. But I, I just can't tell you how proud I am just to kind of watch and hear the stories and know, I golly, all this stuff happens. because this this impulse to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with God is so pervasive in this community. And those of us who don't have time, you know, business travelers, people who have children, you know, three and under (laughs) especially, uh, where we are the ones on the side of the road, you're still a participant if you're giving a couple days of wages a month to this community as you're called to do by the Scriptures. If you're given a couple days' wages, a month, you are a participant. You are a giver while others do the distributing. You're a contributor to the hospital as well as to the ambulance, as Derek was was mentioning earlier. Okay, so got to run to the end here. The question is why. And one of the chief reasons is that the closer we are to the weary and burdened, the closer we are to Jesus. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he added a few words in Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, which I think is a, is a not-so-subtle way to say there's also room for Laodiceans in this picture because it's not so much your financial position as it is your posture, your perspective, that, 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 that evidences whether or not you're an heir of the kingdom. You know, a survey was done of, of an equal number of affluent Caucasian students and, 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 and an equal number of disadvantaged Latino students. Basically, somebody got up, read the Good Samaritan parable, and, and, and asked all of the people, 50% Caucasian affluent, 50% um, underprivileged Latino, who do you identify with most in the parable? Every single Caucasian student said the Good Samaritan. I'm supposed to be the rescuer. And then every single Latino student said... I am the guy beaten down on the side of the road. That's my life right there. That's my parents' life. That's my grandparents' life. It'll probably be my children's life. This is why teaching like the Good Samaritan parable is so jarring to people who have privilege because it moves your cheese and disrupts your status quo and comfort and why it's such a hopeful teaching for those who don't have power and don't have resources and don't have privilege and who weren't born on third base but, but look for everybody in the equation. Look at, this is not a guilt message, folks. This is not a step up. This is not a pull your mercy self up by the bootstraps and, 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 and start getting merciful. That's not what this is about. We miss the whole point if that's where we land here. Because did you notice how Jesus flips the whole question? The man asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' answer is, what is, your, what is a neighbor? A neighbor is somebody that you could never be in your own resources, and from your own strength. Because a neighbor puts his own life at risk. A neighbor empties his pockets. A neighbor follows up and follows through and circles back. A neighbor loves enemies as much as he loves the child in a womb. The answer is, you are Teacher of the law, master of divinity, priest, Levite—you are the one on the side of the road, or you were, and you've been lifted up by a seven-foot-three savior, you know, your five-foot-two self, so that you can dunk, you know, so that you can go out into the world and spread compassion, be part of hospital and ambulance ministry. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. You needed your enemy to rescue you. You needed a savior to come to you from the Middle East with all of your hostility toward him and be your rescuer. What this table says is this, the pressure is completely off of you who think that God's call on you is to maintain your middle class in spirit posture, to see yourself as somebody else's rescuer. No, this is a call to get low, to become who you are, poor in spirit so Jesus can lift you up and say the pressure is off. And because the pressure is off, because I've borne all of the burden of suffering, compassion, and injustice, because I've borne it all, now you have a resource with which you can realistically start going out in freedom to participate in the hospital and the ambulance.